Welcome to episode two of a new podcast, Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. And I'm your host, Jack Llewellyn. I'm a lawyer, I'm an author, and I'm an investigator. Uh, for those of you who were here last week or listened to the last episode, you'll remember that um, we're leading up to the publication of a book that actually gets released on March 8th, a Tuesday. Uh, it's my book. It's entitled uh, Someone Had to Die in the Details, the, uh, the Camarena Case, the murder, and really talks a lot about the conspiracy issues surrounding the case and a lot of the allegations that have come out in the last couple of years. But before we really dive into the book, and in part waiting for it to be officially released, we started last week to try to set some some baseline and say, all right, here's some facts we know to be true so that when we start looking at conspiracy theories and and allegations and uh, some other things about the case, we all have the same frame of reference and certain facts in mind. So, you know, we went through and we talked about the case. We talked about uh, Agent Camarena. We talked a little bit about the history uh, how he was picked up, and those sorts of things. So this week, what we want to do is, again, one more episode to to really get our baseline, get a set of facts that we all can agree upon. And so we're going to talk for a little bit about the traffickers, um, who were the major players at that time. You'll remember uh, that the the term Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel never existed prior to Camarena's death. And so I'm going to try to avoid that, but we'll talk about the three or four principal traffickers at that time and have a little bit of discussion about their relationship, even though we're going to save a lot of that for kind of post-book discussions because it really does enter into some of the different theories and, and ideas on how things occurred and more importantly, why they occurred. But anyways, we're going to talk about a few of the the major players. We're going to talk real briefly about the investigation and a couple of key facts about the investigation, which I think everyone can agree upon. And then we're going to touch just for a couple of minutes on the, the three major American trials in the case. Uh, and that will then position us in a great spot to be able to talk in future episodes about the case, the conspiracy allegations, and really be able to analyze them with some academic rigor and, you know, with an objective towards finding out, um, you know, what the truth is as best we can understand. So let's start off talking about the major traffickers. One of the things you have to know and keep in mind, and, and this comes up in, in my book, we know more about 17th century people in England than we do about some of these traffickers who were born in the 50s in Mexico. Um, there's very little information about most of them. Uh, some of the information we have is uh, contradicted by other information, uh, we'll talk about Ernesto Fonseca in a minute 
and I've seen different estimates on when he was born that range by as much as 14 years and from reputable sources. So when we talk about this, I w- we want to talk about them in a way where we get a basic idea of who they are, where they came from. The specific facts probably matter uh, less. So with that, um, there's three major traffickers that get labeled as being the Guadalajara narcotics cartel. Rafael Caro Quintero, Ernesto Fonseca, and Angel Felix Gallardo. And we're going to talk about each of them. So the, the youngest, probably the most famous of that group, or infamous, and, and I will say if you go to uh, Guadalajara today, the one that everybody knows more than the others by far, was Rafael Caro Quintero. Uh, Rafa was born in Sinaloa, probably in October of 1952. Uh, Poor family, farmers, uh, ranchers, those sorts of things. He probably saw... Uh, His father killed in front of him uh, when he was about 14. And then shortly after that, he moved to Caborca. And and we'll keep that name in mind uh, for later on. But he moved to Caborca when he was about 16. Worked as a rancher, worked as a truck driver. You you know, again, kind of anything you can do in that area to, to survive. And then he got into the drug trade. He started working with a famous trafficker in that area by the name of Pedro Aviles Perez, who also worked with one Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo. Uh, Fonseca also was married to a relative of Caro's, and so um, there was a relationship there. In fact, as a side note, the DEA in Guadalajara, remember I said they never said the Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel, they tended to call them La Familia. And there's also, um, I've seen anecdotes that they may have referred to themselves as La Familia because there's a lot of interrelationships. So um, Rafa starts working sometime around the age of 18, really gets into the marijuana trade, becomes pretty successful, um, seems to have an affinity for it, for whatever that means. Uh growing lots of marijuana. He's alleged to have been one of the real pioneers in growing marijuana outside of of the cities, way out in the deserts, frankly in places that the the anti-narcotics officials, whether that be the DEA, predecessors of the DEA, or Mexican government officials, really didn't think they could ever grow out there. Uh, you'll hear that he was the first and maybe the only one to do it. That's not true. There were lots of others. He just probably did it um, more successfully and on a larger scale than most of the others. In the late 1980s, he moves to, or in 1970s, excuse me, uh, he moves to Guadalajara. Uh, around this time, Felix Gallardo also moves to Guadalajara, at least uh, part-time. Fonseca moves to Guadalajara. Um, and, and there's a couple of different reasons for that. One is Pedro Alvarez Perez had been um, 
so some of the investigations against uh, Perez had been um, pretty successful. There was a lot of heat in that area. And, and then, frankly, Guadalajara was nice. <laughs> um, you know, where they were from in Sinaloa wasn't always that nice. Uh, Guadalajara was a beautiful city. Great weather. Um, even to this day, you know, I, I, I was down there recently and... Uh, one of the people I was talking to is an expat from the U.S., and he lives just outside of, of Guadalajara proper on a, a lake with a lot of other expats. But he says he has neither an air conditioner or a uh, central heating in his house. Never needs it. He so has a little space heater once in a while, and he has a fan. That's it. So, again, beautiful city, big city, uh, a good place to go if you are – young like Rafa was if you have lots of money and you don't want to be kind of in the poor areas of Mexico again. So he moves to Guadalajara, continues to um, expand his operations and to grow or develop larger and larger plantations for his particular brand of marijuana. As most of you probably know, um, Carl was, uh, as opposed to Fonseca and certainly as opposed to Felix Garrido, he was out and about. Um, he was flashy. He was charismatic. Uh, he liked to go to the, the nightclubs. Uh, if you've watched uh, some of the older television shows um, on him, um, you're going to... The the first one on NBC um, years ago, based off of Desperados by Elaine Shannon, I, I think the flashiness shown there is a little bit overdone. I mean, he he was flashy, but he, he wasn't crazy, um, but definitely was out and about and things. So this takes us to, let's say, the beginning of January 1985, and... Uh, Rafa is in in a great spot. You know, he's a he's a big trafficker. He's got lots of money. In uh January, January 30, 1985, there's the incident at La Lagosta. And we talked a little bit about that last week. So that's where Walker and Rattelat, two Americans, um allegedly stumble into a restaurant where there is a meeting being held. And Caro Quintero either participates in or orders that Walker and Radelat be uh, executed. Um, and if you watched uh, Narcos Mexico, the last season, uh, you know you you see that played out. Um, again, we're going to hold off on talking about the degree to which the the general perception is something that, that we think is accurate or not. But what we do know for sure is that Walker and Radelette were killed, and at least some people put the blame almost immediately on Caro Quintero and his group. Shortly after that, on February 7, we have the Camarena abduction. And then uh, two days later, we have the incident at the Guadalajara airport. And 
that incident, we're going to talk about it in detail in a second, but this has been way, way overblown and totally misinterpreted in a number of ways. And we're going to, in the the coming weeks, we're going to talk about that in great detail. What's wrong with the, the common perception? What do people say about it that's clearly wrong um, and that takes away a lot of their credibility? So hold on for that. But what we know right now, is that um, Carl went to the Guadalajara airport, was on a plane getting ready to leave, and a small contingent of DEA agents, together with some MFJP officers, appeared at the airport, tried to prevent the plane from leaving, and Carl flashed some DFS credentials to um, the military in charge and... Uh, Paul von Reyes was the the commander. Paul von Reyes eventually let the, him go. There is the story that Rafa stood at the um, the door of of the the plane and said, uh, you know, something to the effect of, "Next time, my children bring bigger toys," and was flashing uh, some type of weapon probably an AK-47 that was gold-plated. Um, again, we're going to talk in, in coming weeks about that, about how Caro actually ended up there, um, how many people were actually involved in a standoff, uh, whether it was Caro is another issue that we'll talk about in, in different ways. But again, for our purposes now, we know that... He was permitted to leave. Um, We're told that he left Guadalajara, went to Caborca, where he visited family and stayed for a few days, and eventually fled to Costa Rica, where he ended up being arrested um, on April 4 of 1985. He was taken back to Mexico, eventually tried, and sentenced... um, Spent time in a couple of different jails. The story for all three of the main um, figures was that they were initially put into uh, minimum security where they had lots of privileges. That was eventually changed and they were put into uh, tighter security, maximum security prisons where they had far less privileges. Late at night on uh, August 9, 2013, Rafa was released by a judge in Mexico, essentially saying that um, he had served enough time for one of the crimes and um, could not be charged with a- another. Um, the The legalities are irrelevant, but he was released. And since 2013, he has um, been on the run uh, obviously, he's on the DA's list uh, as uh, you know the the number one priority. Uh, the Mexican police still want him, but he has been able to survive uh, without being captured for the last almost you know eight and a half, almost nine years. He has done a couple of interviews uh, in various places where he uh, alleges with varying degrees of conviction, depending on, on your point of view that, uh, he's poor. He lives, 
kind of day-to-day trying to avoid drones and and other things, um, and that uh, he has no involvement in the drug trade anymore. The DEA and others say that uh, he likely formed the Caborca cartel after leaving uh, or getting out of prison with uh, his brother and some other family members. There's also been a number of allegations that um, he tried to kind of take over a new leadership role in the Sinaloa cartel and that he was opposed in that effort by El Chapo and uh, then later by El Chapo's sons. Lots of back and forth on that and whether or not there's a a war going on or a battle, um, however you want to, however you want to describe the conflict um, between Los Chapitos and then uh, those that are loyal to El Mayo or to uh, Carl himself. Um, and one of the things that we will talk about later on is where the cartels stand today. But again, for our purposes of understanding kind of the sequence of events relating to the Camarena case and to Rafael Caro Quintero, that kind of takes you to the current day. So that's Rafa. The older of the three main uh, cartel members was uh, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, Don Neto, who was born in the same hometown as Caro, probably born in... Uh, 1930, he had lots of drug experience uh, in South America. He was arrested in Bolivia at one time. He appears to have had some involvement in the Camarena case, and and without going into too much detail, because we will do that later, um, you know there are allegations that he was involved in some way, shape, or form in having Camarena picked up. Uh, again, whether it was him specifically or Carl, we don't know. Um, or don't know for sure. One of the interesting anecdotes that that may be true is that when Cameron was taken to Lope de Vega, he was uh, interrogated. Fonseca was there. That Fonseca left, went back to his home, came back the next morning, and found out that Cameron was either dead or close to dead. The story goes that he actually slapped Carl Quintero and said, uh, you know, in essence, you made this, you know, you made this baby, you deal with it. Um, and and that he really understood the implications of actually killing a DEA agent. He fled Guadalajara and was arrested in Puerto Varda on April 7 with a whole contingent of people with him. Um. It's alleged that he uh, he told people not to worry about it, that he was working with the government, and that's why a number of his uh, subordinates and lieutenants were also arrested with him and that they didn't flee when, uh, when the arrest took place. One thing that's interesting, in, in some of the shows, you see Don Nato kind of portrayed as... Um, not well dressed, you know, kind of almost hickish, and that really wasn't the case. He um, he often wore a suit, 
I, I've talked to a DEA agent who met with him in a Mexican prison who said he was wearing silk pajamas at the time. Um, he's also, I think, and, and some may disagree with this, as um, not being portrayed as, as overly bright and um, people who knew him or dealt with, with him have said uh, that he was very, very smart and that um, you know he may have been uh, had a bigger role in in kind of how things played out than is known. He was also put in jail again. He went from minimum security silk pajamas to a little bit of a harder life. He was granted house arrest and released in July of 2016. Uh, he's still in Guadalajara at his house. Every once in a while, you'll see pictures of him. Um, you know, he's um, 92 now, so, you know, no real, um, no idea how long he will will be around. Um, hasn't done press, you know, hasn't done interviews, has been very quiet since he's been on house arrest. All right, the third and, and um, probably the most influential of the three was Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, El Padrino, the Godfather, um, or the boss of bosses. I like El Padrino better. Um, so he was born in um, January of 1946 in Culiacan, Sinaloa. Uh, we know he went to high school. We know he took some college classes. And, and then after college, um, he became an MFJP officer. And at one point was... Um, assigned as a bodyguard for the then governor of Sinaloa, uh, Leopoldo Sanchez Salis. And it was from that relationship that we think Felix really developed his skills as a politician, as a deal maker, as a peace broker. He's um, probably most influential in that he helped develop uh, the routes to bring cocaine from Colombia and South America into the U.S. There was a point in time where most of the drugs that were going from South America, particularly from Colombia, into the U.S. went through Florida. And at one point, the DEA really started cracking down on those routes, and so there needed to be a different way to get things in. And with the help of some others who we'll mention in just a moment, Felix really developed the the routes and, and the transportation and, and all the, the logistics of getting mass amounts of drug, I mean, huge amounts, um, from... South America into the U.S., and what they did is they were able to take a cut, a large cut of whatever drugs they transported, and by doing that, um, they became uh, hugely influential. And and again, you know, uh, Felix was really re regarded as the boss of bosses, and he helped coordinate all of the activities. and And one of the things he did is, you know, Mexico had the plaza system. So you had different bosses everywhere and you all operated kind of independently. 
And that worked great when you were just kind of trying to sell what you you manufacture or grew in your own little area. But when you had to transport stuff, there had to be arrangements and there had to be logistics and there had to be understandings. And Felix Gallardo was really good at this. Um, after the Camarena killing, and, and we'll talk a lot about his role in the Camarena killing, but what's really, what I can say absolute, absolutely factually is in most of the early documentation on interviews with witnesses, people who alleged they were there, Felix Gardo is not named as being at Lope de Vega during the interrogation of Camarena. We also know that Sergio Espino Verdeen, who probably was involved in the interrogation of Camarena when he was first arrested, he said that Felix Gallardo was not at Lope de Vega and had no role in Camarena's abduction. Now, Espino Verdeen, the next day after being interrogated, and if you could, if we were doing this video, you could see the air quotes around interrogation. But after being interrogated, Espino Verdeen remembered that uh, that uh, Felix Gardo actually was there. Um, nevertheless, he was implicated in it and in the uh, the murder of Agent Camarena. He was eventually arrested in Guadalajara on April eighth of nineteen eighty nine. He also was put in jail for a little while. He was able to kind of maintain his position as the boss of bosses um, while his conditions were, again, mild. He eventually was moved into uh, maximum security, and that really led to the dismantling of the cartel and the arrangements between the different plaza leaders and led to kind of this boom in different cartels in Mexico and in some respects, the wars between the cartels. Um, and we're going to spend a lot of time in a couple of episodes in the future talking to a former DEA agent who's going to explain in great detail how this dismantling of the system that Felix Garrido had helped create has led to many of the the tragedies that we see in Mexico over the last few years involving the cartels. Uh, Felix Garrido gave a recent interview um, on Univision. It was, uh, in my mind, an attempt to show uh, how dis disabled, how ill he is, and to get house release like Fonseca. Um, I don't think he did a very good job. Uh, and he also said that he didn't really know, um, Carl or Fonseca and said some other things, uh, to, you know, say that he, he had no involvement in, in Camarena that I think he didn't pass the, the, the basic line of credibility, um, and you know, if, if he was trying to gain sympathy, I don't think he did it the right way. Okay. Those are the three that are generally known as the leaders of the Guadalajara cartel. 
One other one that we need to talk about is um, Juan Ramon Mataballesteros, who was a Honduran, born in about 1935 in um, Honduras. He became a um, a drug dealer in um, Honduras. He had um, great connections with the Cali and Medellin cartels, and he is primarily responsible for introducing the the South American drug dealers to Felix Gallardo and setting up that relationship. Um, he was indicted in 1984 for a huge smuggling ring in Van Nuys, California, and another one in Arizona. One of the things we're going to spend a lot of time talking about in the next couple of weeks is Setco, which was a an airline that probably, or at least allegedly, was owned by Matabayasteros that um, was used by the CIA in uh, activities relating to the Nicaraguan Contras. Um, so again, we'll, we'll talk a whole lot about that. Um, he was in, implicated in the Camarena case. Um, he initially was convicted in um, in a trial that we'll talk about in a second, uh, based on some hair testimony that his hair was found at Lope de Vega. We know that he was in Mexico City a couple of days after uh, the uh, the Camarena killing, and that he was allowed to leave, or said better, the DEA and, and Mexican officials were kind of held off for a couple of days before they raided where he had been, uh, and, and then he was able to escape. Fast forward a couple of years, in April of 1988, he was arrested in Honduras, uh, put on a plane, sent to the Dominican Republic, and then to Puerto Rico, where he was arrested by U.S. Marshals, and then eventually brought to Los Angeles for trial. Um, He was convicted in 2017. in connection with Camarena, he was also convicted separately with respect to those um, the Van Nuys and the Arizona smuggling operations. He eventually, um, the charge relating to Camarena was dismissed for reasons we'll talk about later. But basically, um, the hair fiber analysis from the FBI was um, called into question as was the principal witness against him. Uh, he remains in jail uh, because of uh, the the drug charges from the Van Nuys and the Arizona uh, operations. He currently is at the U.S. Medical Center for Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. To the best of my knowledge, he's given very few, if any, interviews um, to the media. I have spoken with him um, and I've spoken with his family, and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. Uh, but his involvement and his role is interesting. And when we start talking about how things developed with the cartel and how things developed with Camarena, he becomes a lot more important than I think others assumed. Uh, one other thing I want to mention with respect to to the uh, the cartel 
and and uh, you know again I, I hate that word but it's the easiest way to describe it there were lots of others um there were other uh, there were um, many other people around at the time that were involved with uh, one or more of Camarena and Felix Gallardo and Fonseca. And so to suggest that it was just these three would really be um, doing an injustice to it. It also would be completely wrong to think of these guys as, as joined at the hip. Um, one of the things that, that we'll, we'll talk about when we start looking into some of the allegations, but in 1985, early 85, um, and late 84. So let's, let's go back to 84. Let's say in in 84, there were some DEA reports talking about the cartel, um, and the operations and, and specifically talking about Felix Garo's operation and Carl is barely mentioned at all in there. There's a later report talking about Caro's operation, and Felix Garda's not mentioned at all. So again, you know, we talk. There's this term, the Guadalajara Narcotics Cartel. They didn't sit down and get together every day. They didn't have you know board minutes. They didn't have meetings. Uh, they really worked. They were. Um, there's a a lawyer who had represented. Uh, people in both Medellin and the Cali cartels and said at one time, you know, there, there are no cartels. They're drug dealers. They cooperate when it's to their benefit and they don't when it's not. So we wanted to talk for just a second about um, the investigation. A couple of things to keep in mind. We talked last week about the, the, um, the missionaries who were killed. We talked to the, today again about, um, La Langosta. Keep in mind, both of those were investigated by the Mexican police and not at all by American officials. Okay, DA had no involvement. Camarena gets killed and almost, or, or kidnapped, sorry, and almost immediately a number of DEA agents from across America come down to Guadalajara. The FBI comes down. There are people everywhere. But the investigation is still hampered because there's only so many things that the uh, the DEA is permitted to do. And so one of the things we know, for example, is that um, Lope de Vega had been scrubbed, for lack of a better term, prior to, to the DEA being allowed to investigate. Even after that, the FBI found certain things, including potentially hair fibers. Uh, they found at least one syringe. There were other things that they found, but the investigation was um, really, really limited based upon, um, again, the scrubbing, the things that had occurred, and that had happened over and over and over again. Uh, you know, We talked about Sergio Espino-Verdin, who was deeply involved with the cartel, had great information, but the the Mexican police controlled the investigations um, and the interviews with him. So in many respects, all of the um, all of the investigation done by the Americans was limited 
and hampered. And as a result, there are holes. There are gaps in information, and that's always going to be the case. One of the other things that I find really interesting is that in all the time, you know, so February of 1985, we're in 2022, so that's 37 years and a month um, from today or tomorrow, I guess. But um, very few people have talked. Um, you know, you still don't get uh, Caro Quintero saying, I'm an old man, I'm ready to tell everything that happened. Nobody really has, has talked. And I know for a fact that, um, that the current DEA folks working on the case have found similar things with witnesses who are literally on their deathbed, who say, not going to talk, I'm going to take it to my grave. In, uh, in the United States, there have been three trials, uh, three criminal trials that were invo- or related to the Camarena case. The first one was in 1988, and that one was Rene Verdugo, uh, Jesus Felix Gutierrez, and then um, Raul Lopez Alvarez. Those were the main defendants. Uh, those cases were more circumscribed. They were based upon, again, some of it on the, the hair evidence. Uh, all three were convicted. Um, we'll talk a little bit about Rene Verdugo in particular later on. Um, but those cases, um, in, in a lot of respects, were more contained uh, and, and less notable, again, for lack of a, of a much better word. Then there were two trials that involved uh, Ruben Zuno Arce. Ruben was um, a Mexican politician, brother-in-law of the former president of Mexico, may have been involved um, with the, the drug traffickers, lots of different allegations. But his trials became a lot more notable, again, in part because of his relationship to uh, – Mexican politicians, but also because the nature of the case changed dramatically. Now we're talking about a large conspiracy. We're talking about conspiracy meetings. We've got a, a witness who's willing to describe all of the different things that happened. Um, so the case is much bigger, much more newsworthy. The first trial starts in, uh, or is in 1990. We call it Zuno 1. He was on trial with Mata, um, with Juan Jose Bernabe Ramirez and Javier Vasquez Velasco, all of whom were convicted. Um, I, I I tell a story. I sat in that case uh, or in that trial at various times, right next to Mata, um, and I had grown up in a small town in Colorado. Went to University of Minnesota for law school. And uh, honestly, sitting next to Mata Ballesteros for several days during trial was, uh, at the time, the scariest thing I'd ever done in my life. Uh, so anyways, that trial goes on. Uh, and then, and everyone's convicted. Zuno gets a new trial. We're going to go into 
these trials in great detail coming up. But for our purposes today, Zuno gets convicted. He gets a new trial based on prosecutorial misconduct. And really what happened was the AUSA on the case, uh, Manny Medrano, had said that a certain piece of evidence should be admitted and that he was only using it for a limited purpose. At, in closing arguments, he probably used it for a different purpose. The court found that that was prejudicial and ordered a new trial. That case went up to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit agreed, sent it back down. And in 1992, there was uh, a second trial, the Zuno II trial, where uh, Zuno was tried with Dr. Umberto Alvarez Machain, who had been a doctor who hung around with the cartel or with the traffickers who may have been at Lope de Vega um, and may have administered drugs to Cam Morena. At least that was the allegation. Um, he becomes famous because he was basically kidnapped in Mexico, taken to the U.S. and dropped, almost literally dropped uh, on the runway in El Paso. Uh, lots of issues with respect to him. His case went to the U.S. Supreme Court a couple of times. He ends up getting, uh, there's a directed verdict after the case against him with uh, the district court judge finding that the government really had presented no evidence sufficient um, to uh, find that, that he had committed the crimes. And he has, um, he was then released, sent back to Mexico. Uh, where he lives today, he's in Guadalajara. He owns a, a a taco restaurant. They call it a taco stand. I've been there. It's not a taco stand. Uh, and then Zuno was subsequently convicted. Uh, his appeals at the Ninth Circuit and the U.S. Supreme Court, and then subsequent uh, appeals at the district court level were all denied. And Ruben died in uh, jail. A few years ago. So what have we done now? We have now gone basically from, from pre-Camarena, the DEA in Guadalajara, through the trials to say, here are the facts we know. And I appreciate uh, everyone's indulgence in getting us to this point, but I think it's going to be really important when next week we start talking about the things that that I present in my book. Again, someone had to die, comes out on the 8th. But what we're going to do is we're going to start talking about the major theories, the major um, controversies surrounding the Camarena case. We're going to talk about Narcos Mexico and how it was developed and some of the things there. We're going to talk in great detail about the last narc on Amazon Prime, we're going to talk about the role of the CIA. We're going to talk about the role of Felix Rodriguez, if there were any. We're going to talk about some bizarre coincidences, uh, some uh, amazing things that occurred during and between the Zuno trials. We're going to talk about allegations made uh, with respect to Jaime Kirkendall, who was Camarena's boss in... Guadalajara. Um, we're going to talk specifically about uh, Hector Boreas and the claims he's made. And we're going to, 
the the goal here is to take the facts we know, evidence that we haven't talked about yet, and really analyze things, okay? And and not take everything at face value. Um, and then we're also going to talk about Godoy, Lopez, and Lira, Lopez Romero, excuse me, and Ramon Lira, who are the main um, witnesses, again, in air quotes, from the last narc. And then, as I mentioned earlier, we're eventually going to get to, we're going to talk a lot about the cartels today and kind of how they got to where they are. During all of this, um, we're going to have some guests. We're going to have a, a couple of DEA agents. We're working on a couple of witnesses whose names have been mentioned earlier. Uh, there's some logistical issues in, in getting them on. Um, my hope is that we eventually get uh, Agent Barayas to come on and talk to us. Uh, and we'll have some others. So going to conclude today. Really appreciate everybody following along for um, these two. And I think uh, things are going to get more interesting. Uh, and and frankly, I, I get excited. They're, they're exciting issues to talk about going forward. And we will do that in the next episode of Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Thanks for joining.